0: Welcome to the second episode of Words of Prey, which is a Pipeline Artist original podcast. Um, You can reach us at podcasts, plural, at pipelineartist.com and find us at pipelineartist.com backslash listen. start agora which is our inaugural imprint for polis books john vercher was the first book with his three fifths that i chose and it was something that i immediately attached to immediately loved and immediately knew was going to be amazing and there will always be kind of like highlander he you know it is always the one and so, uh, John Vircher is our second guest for this podcast, and I think that his background in both uh, having an MFA, wanting to be published, ending up being published in genre fiction, and all of his journey going forward will hopefully be educational to everybody who's listening and you know, has various hands in, in various pies. So welcome, John Vircher.
1: Thank you for having me. That was a hell of an introduction.
0: So one of the things and we'll get to more fun things because you and I have a very similar taste when it comes to television, uh, graphic novels that sort of thing Um, Mm -hmm. and and I look forward to discussing that in a more fun way in the future but going a little bit more business at the outset I'd like to know a little bit about your journey and um, you know how you feel for example your MFA made a difference to you in being published or what your choices were and just, just a little bit about that publishing journey, because I think that you've had um, no credit to me being given, but a fairly decent one, um, a fairly, I don't want to say meteoric rise, but your book is brilliant, if I do say so myself, um, and, and it's been acknowledged as such. So uh, how you accepted your journey, and then what you would suggest for other people in following a path. What did you do right what did you do wrong what was questionable or difficult and what wasn't
1: so it's kind of a a a braided answer in the sense that there are things that i think people will be able to take away from it and there are things that were at least to my knowledge fairly unique for my situation so if i go back to the origin of the story and when I first conceived of these characters and, and this idea, you know, I, I've said it in, in a number of different interviews, but it, it goes back over 20 years to when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. So I had, I graduated in, uh, with a, an undergraduate degree in English and then made, you know of course a very logical transition into a physical therapy program because who doesn't do that um but i did that because i didn't you know it, it i majored in fiction but i didn't actually think i had any chops to write a book or or do anything like that and while i had some great professors and great teachers i didn't that just wasn't it wasn't a path anybody was leading me toward. Um, and maybe part of that had to do with the quality of my writing. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, my parents were both in healthcare. I was, I definitely wanted a job that wasn't just waiting tables. Not that that's not, I mean, I, I made a long career in profession. at waiting tables. I think it's a really honorable profession, but I, but I knew that I couldn't do that forever. And so um, I followed my parents' path into healthcare. And, uh, was lucky enough to get into a very competitive program. And I was, uh, I was a physical therapist for 10 years, but before that, um, before I had gotten into PT school, I started playing around with the idea of this story that revolved around race and identity and, uh, and con and the conflicts around that, because I was a mixed race kid um raised as a young black man in a and as a college student you know and when you're that age you're already sort of trying to figure out who you are anyway you know but then you add on top of this the, the fact that uh you know some people find you to look ambiguous racially you know they you always get the question of what are you so i was i was dealing with some of the themes that were present in that book um and this was also around the time that like uh it not long after, actually, after I graduated, when like Project Greenlight was a big thing that, that Mm -hmm. whole thing with like Matt Damon and and Ben Affleck. And it was kind of like, oh, these two guys, like, you know, they never told you, like when they're interviewing these, like Damon and Affleck, that they had been doing a bunch of other stuff in terms of acting and movies, their whole, their, you know, for years before they hit big. So it kind of was like, oh, these two guys wrote a screenplay and became this Oscar winning film. And I'm like, I can do that. (laughs) So, um, Uh, so I, I kind of self-taught, um, or I taught myself how to write a screenplay. Like I bought a bunch of different books on three act structure and Uh just screenplay formatting and I bought a screenplay. So I originally wrote three fists as a screenplay, like in the late nineties. Um, and the concept was interesting enough that a couple of production companies actually asked to look at it. So that was exciting. Um, but the writing was dog shit and it didn't go anywhere. Um, And so I was like, well. doubt that
0: was your fault, but go ahead.
1: uh, Look, I'm I'm very uh, willing to admit (laughs) what was on the page was not as high concept as the idea. So uh, I made the transition. I I went to, I said, okay, this is not it. And uh, I took my licensing exam and I became a physical therapist for almost a decade. And I I was good at it, but I wasn't happy. And I always felt that creative pull that was like, that story never went away in my mind. You know, uh, my wife and I, uh, are avid television, movie watchers, book readers, you know? And so um, anytime we were sitting there on the couch, like, watching a movie or watching a television show, I'm pointing out all the things that I think like, oh, that could have been written better. Oh, the story could have gone this way. And the more that went on, the more I realized that like, man, I really miss being creative. And so I started looking for ways to incorporate it into my work because I was like, well, I'm in healthcare. How can I be creative? And so I'm like, well, uh, okay, I'll start. Maybe I'll start contributing to the, to the company newsletter, you know, because that's a thing. And then that sort of opened up doors for me to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe I don't need to be a, a clinician anymore. Maybe I can get into like healthcare marketing. Um, and I kind of found my way into that and, and started doing content pieces and it was writing and it was, it made me happy, but it, it still like, wasn't what I wanted to do. And so my, my loving supportive wife was like, you, you have to do something because this is not, you're not doing what you're meant to do. And, but I felt like after 10 years, I had forgotten everything I had learned about writing. And, and I, and to be honest, I didn't feel like I, I wasn't sure how much I had actually learned anyway. So I started looking at MFA programs and I found a low residency program and it was, I, I, but then when I applied for it, I found out that I needed 20 pages of a work in progress, and I, you know, wasn't going to send him a healthcare newsletter like that was wasn't really going to cut it. <laughs> so I said, I, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't. I like. I, well, how am I going to come up with 20 pages or something? And again, brilliant wife. She says, Why don't you novelize your screenplay? I was like, Oh, like I read books. I I know how they work. I maybe I can do that. <laughs> uh, and so I, I took a stab at writing the first 20 pages of the three fifth screenplay is a book. And I got a phone call from one of the, the, faculty advisors there. And they said, Hey, we'd love to have you if you're coming. And so I went, and it was, it was a great experience. Um, uh, there, there are things that I, you know, as we'll talk about later cause I'm rambling right now, but, um, we can talk about the, the, the pluses and minuses. But so for me, I, the, this is where I think that there's a, there, there is, and there isn't a takeaway for people that are listening. And that I didn't go, I didn't apply to an MFA program because I thought it was the only way to get published. I, I went because I wanted to publish a book, but I realized that I, I I didn't remember anything about craft or mechanics or, or even what I should be quote unquote reading, um, which that's a whole other discussion in and of itself. But, I knew I needed to re-immerse myself if I was actually going to take a real run of this. Um, so that's kind of what takes me up to the MFA. I,
0: I I think, and, and to ramble for a moment from my end, um, I got John's book listener, um, basically through the slush pile in my email. Um, and I get a lot of those, but somehow I read basically the first page of this and I knew without a doubt that it would be the launch title for the line that I was hired to do. Um, there was something different and special and wonderful about it. However, John and I, and of course now, you know, um, he's, he's moved forward from Agora um, and he's got his second book coming out in the summer of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, which is even more brilliant than Three Fits, if I'm totally honest. Um, so I'm very excited for him. But we talked a lot about the fact that, you know, he'd grown, he'd grown up, for lack of a better word, with an MFA, with these various um, conventions, and I was a genre publisher, So I think trying to fit three-fifths into the genre crime fiction box was a little bit of, I don't want to say a growing pain for you, but for lack of a better word, it was. Because as much as there is the literary value to that, it was also a crime fiction story that you were writing. So how did you feel about literary versus genre before you took the MFA program versus after and when I acquired you. <laughs> so,
1: so I'll give you the completely honest answer. I had, I didn't know the fucking difference. I had, <laughs> I, I had no, I, I had no idea. Like I just read what I like to read and uh, uh, which is where I am now, honestly. Um, I, I definitely skew towards a different type of writing, yeah. but like, I don't like when I go into the bookstore, I don't make my way to a certain section. Um, you know, I kind of look at, I, if anything, I tend to look more at like, you know, one of the things I love about independent bookstores is they usually have a wall where it's like the people that work there have their favorites. That's usually mm-hmm. the first place I go. Um, I didn't, I didn't know the difference. I had no idea. Like, I, so, um, I think that the emphasis on literary fiction, at least in the program that I was in, I still find that that was very helpful in terms of, of craft and mechanics, but they, I also felt like the emphasis was so strong that they, they tended to train the story out of you. And like, to me, there's a difference between story and plot, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's nuanced, but it's, but to me, it's very clear. Like uh, there's plot heavy novels and then there's story heavy novels. And to me, like, uh, yes, I want deep introspective character studies, but something's got to (laughs) happen. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. I can't, I don't want to st- I don't want to read about characters, just standing around thinking about stuff. Like, I, yes, I want to know what they're thinking, but if they're not driven to action in some way, then, then what is, what's the point? Like, I mean, even the growth of a character can be story, but you've got to show the growth. So I, I think that was maybe one of the elements that I kind of had to shed or learn to shed. And if if that's in the if that's in the conversation about genre versus non-genre, then maybe maybe that kind of falls within that conversation. Um, but but I I think that's where that's where you the the growing pain that you talked about kind of came in. It, it wasn't so much about whether or not I accepted being a crime fiction writer or this or that. It, it's just more that like I learned that there there is a perceived difference, but at the same time, I'm kind of like. I don't care. (laughs) Really. I just Uh, want to read. I I want to read a story about what's that.
0: I said, I completely agree with you. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I really feel like genre is something that happened within the last, let's say 20 to 30 years, uh, with a particular subject matter designation that's made mostly for marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, honestly, now having worked as an editor for a publisher for several years now, I I can sell Jaws as a Western very easily. (laughs) Uh, So I I really think that genre is just a marketing tool, which I understand, but I also think handicaps a lot of books in a lot of ways. And a lot that I publish or that I edit tend to – cross over into a bunch of different places um and 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 really pigeonholing them is i actually think bad um i mentioned this in the last podcast that i did but you know if you are if you love movies you'll generally watch any genre of film right one night you might want a horror movie one night you might want a thriller or a western or pick it right i don't see that as much in readers where you know i only read insert genre here i only read medical mysteries that's not something that happens in anything other than books really um so I think finding that thing where and again I don't think it's the onus of the reader that's the problem I think it's the marketer that's the problem and goes hey you know you like this but this crosses over here and now oh if you read this and like this now you might read this genre or you might read that genre because it you know there's the tell me a book that just encompasses one thing.
1: Well, right. And, and I mean, isn't that sort of a microcosm of the problems we have as a culture, really? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's all about this classification and where you fit and all these these different things when, you know, especially when it comes to books, it's just like, it's it just, some books are gonna be some people's cup of tea and others aren't, I mean, God, go, go look at any Goodreads review of any, of any book. right? And you're, you're, you're going to find books that are critically acclaimed that people can't stand and books that, that aren't critically acclaimed that people love. So it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's a marketing ploy and I think it's harmful and, uh i don't see it going anywhere anytime soon <laughs>
0: yeah no right um okay so another question and i want you to be brutally honest with this one please um, yeah. just because i happen to be your editor um in in this instance we're talking as you know friends colleagues whatever um i'd like you to tell listeners about your first publication experience and what you thought it would be what it ended up being um what to look out for
1: are we talking sort of from like representation on or are we talking well, like
0: Echo, you want to go with this <sighs> but you know i know that you were brutally honest with me in every step that we took together um and i really think that a lot of things that happened to you with selling your first novel are probably able to resonate with people who are on the same journey.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to make sure that I, that I, uh, while I'm brutally honest, I'm also fair. So I, I, the, I, I think I'll go to when I, when I graduated, you know, the, the, the whole push behind the MFA program was that by the end, your thesis would be a, uh, uh, ready to a, a publishable book. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I, I took that literally. Um, and so when I, when I was done and I had gotten my, my mentor's final feedback and I graduated, I was like, Oh shit, this thing's ready to, ready to sell. And I, I, I would caution, you know, unless, unless you're, uh, uh, I guess a phenom at, at some of the stuff, which those, those people certainly do exist. You, I would not submit your first draft straight out of an MFA program, um, or, you know, just your first draft in general. Like I, that was, that was pure naivete on my part and, and i paid the price for it. I mean, it was rejection after rejection, after rejection, um, until I kind of figured out, okay, I I need to, I need to tighten this up a bit. Um, So the limitation, I think in my MFA program, and I don't, I can't speak for others, so I have no idea, but there was very little discussion of the business side of things. Like if you actually want to get published, Um, you know, I I had to find out a lot of this on my own, you know, how to query, you know, we had, we had a little bit of a, of, a, of a background on structuring a query letter, but there was no, nothing about how you need to go to the website. You need to find out if this author even reps what you're writing or excuse me, this agent even reps what you're writing, or, you know, look at their list. What have they sold? How, how recently have they sold, uh, to whom are they selling? Like these are all things that are really important that I had no fucking clue about when I graduated.
0: And and Um, absolutely. I think to interrupt you for just one second, I think you're absolutely right. Because I always say like, you know, if, if if you're go to a doctor and a doctor recommends, you know, something's wrong and you have to have surgery, you're going to Google what they've said the minute you get home. But somehow writers, there's this Special rainbow, Golden Gate, we can't get past this. It's really, you know, unknowable. Um, these special magical things that happen behind the publishing wall. And the thing is that you ought to inform yourself. Just as you would if you were having that surgery, about you know how a book is published, what the questions are that you need to ask. You don't obviously have to be completely conversant in everything because you're not a publisher, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, just knowing how what is it the donuts are made I think that's the saying. Uh, Uh,
1: Sausage is made.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Donuts are better, though, right.
1: Well, I mean, it depends. Yeah, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, and and let's, let's be, let's be honest here. I mean, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room to, uh, to some extent. Like it's, it's some of it is designed to be that way. Like it's, it's designed to be a little bit exclusive and it's designed to be a lot exclusive for writers of color. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I, 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 I firmly believe that I ran into a lot of that, and, and I say that knowing that there are some people that will roll their eyes and say that that's an excuse that it had to do with the writing and not the not the the walls that are put up in front of me. But, you know, those yeah, that I, your, you're going your you're you're to your believe you're going to believe what you're going to what you're gonna believe. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There's this there's this mysticism about it that is designed to be exclusionary. Um, and it was disappointing that. <laughs> again, can only speak for the program I was in, it was disappointing that there was not more done to help us navigate that path.
0: Well, and, and, merely- so,
1: and, and that's not to say that some people didn't offer some help. Like there were, there were there, I, I definitely want to be clear that there were faculty that offered some assistance to me, but they should have, that should have been available for everybody. That should have been a class <laughs> so that that was my thing
0: well, strangely, you know i i I went to law school uh, more years ago than I care to admit, and I found kind of weirdly something similar where you were taught all of these you know idealized premises. But nobody graduating my law school actually knew how to file a brief at a court, mm-hmm. right. Um, right? Because there was not that it, it it was all conceptual and nothing that was like hands on how to do it. And I felt it was very handicapping. You know, it just I I I I really did not have real world experience. And I think it's true of publishing or Hollywood as well. And, oh my God, like quadruply so mm-hmm. if you're a writer of color who just, right. you know, can't break in at all. Right. So having all of this, so other than obviously giving yourself, because really at the end of the day, I don't care who you are, you have to give yourself the education you're responsible for yourself um so finding all of these things out and learning how it actually works or finding somebody who will tell you how it works or whatever but what did you do that you think was really right and what do you wish you knew now? you know Having now, you're on your second book, which is brilliant, by the way. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I will keep saying thank you. Thank you. It is brilliant. Um, (laughs) But what do you wish that you had done differently or had known or a resource that somebody else could possibly find?
1: So, I, I wish I had known a lot of the things that I talked about. At the, at the beginning of that, you know, I I wish I had known about how to research an agent and what to look for. Um, I thought I had done a decent job of that because the, I ended up meeting my, my first agent at a conference that was essentially like, that taught me how to refine my pitch, which the, the, the conference did an excellent job of that. And I, and the agent that taught that I actually ended up, um, going with. And I will say that some of that was because she was, you know, I, I I always speak very highly of her. Like she's, she's a, she's a very nice woman. She was, she's very charming. She seemed very invested in the book. Um, but I didn't do any of of my research on her that I, and it was research that I didn't know to do. And so I, I didn't, I didn't know that she didn't rep my kind of book. Well, actually, that's not true to her credit. She told me that she didn't typically rep my kind of book, but, and, and potential or or aspiring writers and writers or aspiring authors, I should say, and writers that are listening to this now will know this feeling when you're offered representation, you're like, fuck, I don't care if you don't represent my book or my kind of book, (laughs) you're going to represent my book. So I don't, what do I give a shit about the other people you represent? And that's hugely important, hugely important. Like I can't stress it enough. Uh, and and so because I didn't know any better, because I didn't pay attention to that fact that she had given me, I, we spent too long together and it turned out to just not be a fit. Not because she had done a, a bad job, not because of anything other than we just weren't a fit. And so if I could say the thing that I did right was that I finally admitted to myself that having no agent was better than having the wrong agent.
0: I think and, that's very true. And actually I was having a discussion today about how I, I, strongly, and this is one of my myriad soap boxes that I will get on. Um, so stop me if I, I start going too far, uh, hey, this is your but, podcast, <laughs> but I really feel like agents. It, it's so easy to set yourself up as an agent in this business. And unlike being a lawyer, or I'm guessing even a physical therapist, or, you know, you have continuing education that you have to do. And there's absolutely nothing. And I'm not saying monetarily, educationally, whatever it is, there should be certain things when you're advising somebody about their career that you ought to know before you step in and go, I am taking responsibility for this. And there's nothing there for book agents, which is why you have to be so careful and doing research and and figuring out if people know what they're talking about.
1: Yeah, I I think that was one of the things I found surprising as I got further into my journey, quote unquote, on this whole thing. Like, it, I that that fact was surprising to me, but you know. In in hindsight, the, the internet's an amazing thing. Like you can find mm-hmm. out a whole lot, um, you know, book, Twitter quote unquote, is a very real thing. You can connect with people who will, who will give you the straight dope on what you need to know. Um, but, but having said that, and, and, you know, when it comes to any of the research that you do for agents, publishers, editors, what have you, you you don't you don't just go with the first amount of information that you get either like you don't go with the first opinion you get you know it's to your to use your analogy it's the same as a physician like you know even if your doctor recommends another doctor to you like if you've got a heart problem and he recommends you to an orthopedist I mean, you probably shouldn't go see that guy you know and then even if he does send you to the right kind of doctor you might want to talk to a few people that doctor has seen so it it's at the end of the day, you, you've got to make a decision, right? You've got you've got to go with your gut, but, um, you've, you've also got to make that gut decision informed to some extent.
0: Um, well, and, and I that's, the thing think I think I one of the do. brilliant things that you said, um, i answering going answer in my rambling question. Um, it is, you know, the fact that if you are a new author and you've got a book and somebody offers to represent you, you just get so excited. You don't care what experience they have. You don't care what background they have. You don't care. And I think it's so important to know that, you know, it's, it, it's like selling anything. Like if you know how to sell a car, that doesn't mean you know how to sell a refrigerator. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, if you specialize in romance and I, I worked for many years, I was the editor in chief of RT book reviews, um, magazine, so that specialized in romance, but it had a lot of other arms as well. But if you did one thing that didn't necessarily mean that you knew how to do, you know, if I'm an agent, I, I just, because I'm pick a person, John Grisham, anybody pick somebody, um, I'm John Grisham's agent and I can sell him, you know, everywhere. And that's amazing. And I want to represent you, but you write nonfiction or memoir. That's a whole different marketing tool. That's a whole different. Uh, it's it's a whole different networking scheme, you know, because yeah. all of the, the reason behind an agent is to get in front of people who want what you're offering and if you go well i sell refrigerators and you sell houses whatever it is right. um these are two very different types of sales and and one does not necessarily transfer into the other no matter how large the one person is in that small pond
1: that's exactly right
0: so I think, I think that was really, really smart of you. Okay, so going into um, the more fun part, hopefully, um, <laughs> <laughs> of this interview, uh, one of the questions that I really like to ask is, you know, obviously, you know, you've done uh, three-fifths there with Agora. Um, And your next book is coming out next summer, which is also very psychological and literary and has all of these things. But what I'm really dying to know is if you could write for any property or person, (laughs) who would it be? And what would it be?
1: God, that's such a long list. I know. Um, I can tell you the one that comes to mind. Immediately, just because it was recent, um, but there there were four hours of my life I couldn't get back with the Zack Snyder uh, version of Justice League.
0: Oh, good. Um, don't don't start that. I mean, we'll have a four-hour podcast, please. I,
1: I mean, I mean, it, look, 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 it, look. It was better. It was better than the two and a half that I lost on the Whedon version. Uh, admittedly, better, but it was still four hours of garbage. And, but, (laughs) but the, but the highlight was the expansion of Ray Fisher's cyborg.
0: Oh God. Yes.
1: And so I, you know, my, I have my two boys they are eight and six and they, they love um, a lot of the Lego properties, right? Like the Lego Marvel, Lego DC stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've, has driven me up a wall and I will actually not let them watch the Lego Justice League's ones anymore. And it is because the, the cyborg character in those ones is always putting on this voice that is so stereotypically black where it's, 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 uh, it's offensive. And like, I don't want them having that impression of one of the main black characters in the DC universe, who's got a great story, and, and he's sort of being reduced to this it, it's caricature, and so when I saw the 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 i mean Ray Fisher really plays that character even with the shitty script he's been given he plays <laughs> no, he, he does plays it really the, well, yeah, he plays it with real like this very understated kind of just just this, and he's got this honestly
0: between that character. and the flash, like it's just yeah
1: the, yeah, the flash get rid of
0: everybody else. And,
1: yeah, the Flash even is all is all right. Anyway. Oh, um,
0: okay. So we're gonna have to write this, but keep going. <laughs> so I
1: all that to say, I would love to write a cyborg property, even though I don't know the character as well because I'm I'm much more of a Marvel guy than DC. Like I, it's not even close, really. But um, but but I really liked what they did. With him in that movie, and I would love to see like that character deserves a solo because there's so much about what you can dive into into the manipulation of black bodies and and his struggle with his parents and and they, I mean there's just there was just so, there's such a rich character to be mined there um, so that's that's my most recent answer. I, th-
0: uh, I I think that's wonderful, and we'll go into Flash in a minute, but to answer the this- second. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're going back. Um, <laughs> uh, is there a particular actor or actress that you would like to write for or somebody that you already do in your head when you write something? Like, you do you cast? Mm. Your yes,
1: book? yeah. So for, for my second book, there's one character who uh, I had an actor in mind specifically for no other reason than... I was capturing his manner of speaking um some of his facial expressions because i i think he's one of the most talented actors out there uh brian tyree henry so he was nice. the voice of he's the voice of miles morales's father in um into the spider-verse if we're talking comic book stuff but he's brilliant as Paper you know Boy we're always talking in,
0: comic book stuff
1: yeah yeah but but his but his, where he is where he is a standout is as paperboy in Atlanta, which to me is still the greatest television show ever created.
0: No, that's a great answer. So is there any property that's not like a a comic book property, just a character that you'd like to play in their universe?
1: I'm not a series guy when it comes to books, which is odd because I love comic books, but I don't like, I don't, I don't typically like books that are series. Um, So... TV series. I mean, Atlanta you know, would be amazing. Yeah, like that. because it, it's it, like the second season of that show in particular was so incredible in the sense that like there are characters that follow through the series, but each episode could have could have stood alone. There was one episode in particular in season two that was that, that you could have expanded into a full length movie. It was that good, um, and it was one where they centered uh, Lakeith Stanfield. Who was uh-huh. in Get Out, and he and he just got nominated for um, um, Judas and the Black Messiah. So yeah, Atlanta for sure. I don't, but I don't think I could. I honestly don't think I could keep up with um, Donald Lover. Like I just don't. I don't think my writing could <laughs> could could meet the brilliance of that show. Can you tell I like the show? I really. I, I,
0: it. I can tell a little bit. So going back, I'm curious about your reaction to The Flash.
1: I, it's, it's he's too sticky. Like I, I couldn't and and, and like and, and in the Snyder cut there was like some weirdness there, man. Like when when he was saving the woman from the car crash, and he's like kind of caressing her face. <laughs> and it's like we like you just saw this woman, and then he reaches for the hot dog, which like we get later why he's gonna do that. But immediately after he's caressing the woman's face like the whole vibe in that part of the scene, like it kind of like flavored his character for the rest of the movie for me. So I was kind of like, ah, nah, I'm not, I'm not really here with Flash. I'm not feeling.
0: Okay. You're not wrong, but where I was going with this, and I'm not saying that I'm right, especially based on what you just said. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like a lot of the more, uh, for lack of a better word, A-list characters I feel like the writers were, and directors, uh, were constrained by what was expected and couldn't do anything extra. And so that's why I preferred Cyborg and Flash out of that movie, because they were, no offense to the characters, but they're not, you know, the popular kid, right? Right, right. The secondary character. And I felt like a lot more was done with those because there wasn't that constraint.
1: Yeah, no, I agree.
0: It it had more depth.
1: I got into a big uh, conversation with uh, a very long text conversation with another writer, Matt Coleman, about the mistakes that DC has made versus uh, Marvel why, why the MCU is getting it right and DC just keeps shitting the bed. And yep. the, the, the big thing is they rely on like their big three. They always rely on their big three. Like it's gotta be Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And, and, and they've only gotten Batman right. Um, you know, the, the, there's yet to be a Superman movie that touches Superman two with Christopher Reeves. Like they just, they just can't come anywhere close. Um. It just. They just. they just. That's it fact. I'm, I'm not even going to argue opinion on that. Like that's just fact. There's no. There's no better Superman. Agree
0: movie. with that statement. But okay. You
1: disagree with that?
0: I. And and basically yeah, my geez. issue. Well, my issues is with Lois Lane more than Superman, but.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, there's margot Kidder. Like that's just. She is Lois Lane. Like there's just no two ways about it. I,
0: uh, I
1: mean. And you can't get out of the comedy of Richard Pryor and Superman three, like that's, I mean, just Richard Pryor scenes alone are, you know, that's his best cinema gold, but, um, but like Marvel. So, but the the whole point was that Marvel has done a fantastic job of making ancillary characters interesting. Right? Like if you had told me there was going to be an Ant-Man movie before the MCU had kind of gotten some steam, I'd be like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like, there's no way I'm going to see an Ant-Man movie. It was a ridiculous character in the comics. And yet they found the right director and the right writers to say, we're not going to take this too seriously, but we're still going to make him instrumental to the grander story that we're going to tell, which is Endgame. Because without, without Ant-Man, there is no quantum tunnel. There's none of the the time travel stuff. Like none of that works if you don't incorporate Ant-Man into it. DC has not done that. Like, they, they cannot make their ancillary characters interesting. They always rely on the big ones. And then they try to make them dark and edgy. And, like, Superman's not dark and edgy. Like, you can't do that. I have a whole thing. So, like you said, this could be a whole other podcast.
0: <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I even down to, so, watch the Snyder Cut, like, um, a week ago. And it, it made just to make a visual statement about how I feel the characters are in their ethos. Like we had Batman with his weird vest. He looked like a croupier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Aquaman, who I think is cast perfectly for this. But they oh, so keep good. just introducing and introducing and introducing his character. And then we have in this same scene with the croupier <clears throat> vest scene, we've got the um, scarf with a sleeveless tank top. Like none of this makes sense. Like there's so much going on there and nothing is happening.
1: Yeah, Well, that, that's actually a really accurate statement about, it. I think like every DC movie. There's a there's a shit ton to look at, but nothing's actually happening. Yeah, like they they just they they fall apart. They fall apart. Well, and the and the other thing too is that DC has this thing about like making their heroes godlike, and and I don't mean like in the religious sense. I mean like they the like oh well, you like if Greek, you're talking like about myth-
0: Superman, but well, well talk yeah, about that but later. like <laughs> like
1: mythological like they're they're they are they they are they are deities unto themselves. Where Marvel heroes are, and even the villains are, they're like people. Like you can, you know. I mean, Thanos is talking about like uh, saving resources, and you're kind of like, oh, oh, all right, well, okay, maybe. And then, you know, the, the the thing that got me about the the Thanos dark side comparisons were like. Dark side. they got to give him glowing red eyes and they got to give him this big, huge voice alteration and he's got to sound so evil. And with Thanos, you just got Josh Brolin talking and he's 10 times more menacing than this overblown, like CGI character in DC. Like they've just, they've got something, they've got a formula over there for the writing and the actors and the acting that DC just has not figured out yet. They've been playing catch up ever since. And, and they're not even close, they're not even in the room.
0: Well, I don't disagree with that, but I also, in, in a slightly larger sense, disagree with a little bit of how both universes have been doing the villains. Like, you know, I grew up, and just like you mentioned moments ago, was, you know, Christopher Reeve's Superman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we had Lex Luthor, and he was Gene Hackman. And not Mm -hmm. that that was the best villain ever, but it was relatable and not human is the wrong word, but there was a level of depth to it. And then Mm -hmm. I feel like in the last, I'm going to say five years, we've rebooted all of the villains that are, I don't know, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just not human, but very vague and without depth or without a true cause um, mm. and one, one to- notable
1: exception, one notable <laughs> exception.
0: okay, go with a notable exception.
1: Killmonger in Black Panther.
0: okay, yes. That is very true. Um, James Spader is an amazing villain. He was perfectly cast for that. But, oh, there, was, but there was no reason behind this villainy.
1: It, it was there, but it was not fleshed out well. It could have been done much better. Um, and, and actually, his manner of speaking as Ultron was jarring. Like, I didn't, I didn't expect, like, I expected somewhat human conversation from the robot, but not like that human. Right. Like, I mean, like you, like, if you knew, if you know who James Spader was, you were like, oh, that's James Spader playing James Spader. Like, it wasn't, right. it wasn't like a huge, it wasn't a huge reach, but he's, but he's, you know, he plays good villains. So I, I think it was a combination of those things where it was like, his agenda wasn't super clear other than his, was this AI awakened and thought. The Avengers were bad.
0: It's well, like, and oh, see, well, I feel like that's just. More than that. I I feel like that that's the villain that they keep coming up with in different well, so iterations.
1: I, I don't I don't think that's unique to Marvel. I think that's a problem in literature and books in general. I so it, to to bring it back full circle, if we talk about three fifths, like when I first started writing Aaron he was very one note and, uh, very just, just, I tried to make him as evil as I could cause that's what racists are. Right? Like, but the truth of that matter is somewhat uglier than we want to admit, which is that sometimes people like that can be, they can have moments in their life and people in their life to whom they are kind yeah. and it, we can't reconcile that shit. And so, I, those those are the those are the shows that attract me the most. I think it's I think it's why Breaking Bad was such a huge success. Like by all accounts, Walt is this Walt White is despicable, but like but then he does these things where you're like, like okay, well he did he did really start this for his family, we think, and and then he and then he has these moments of kindness throughout the show, even even in the midst of like all this horrible shit that he does, but like that's i mean you, human nature is not pretty it's it's ugly right especially when you give in to the uglier sides of it and so I, I, that's that's why to me killmonger was amazing because like killmonger to me i always say he's a quote unquote villain like some of the shit he was saying wasn't wrong it was it was the way he was going to go about rectifying wrongs that were wrong so it's that you're right that the, there there's a lack of that kind of villainy in the MCU definitely in DC um, but I think that's true of a, a lot of creative forms i don't i don't it's it's almost like we're we're too afraid to admit that evil people can still have some elements that make us feel like they're human at times
0: well and i think that's it i mean it's why you know anti-heroes work um i always say to my students i'm like you know it, it there's no reason that i should ever relate for example to batman i don't have list the things here um but there is the thing that i relate to which is a desire for justice to be served And so, even though this is a character that I can't relate to at all, there's an element there that I can. It's a part of me that I would like to see happen, and I think the same is true of all villains. You know, there.
1: I I almost think it's. I almost think it's more true for villains.
0: Yeah, there has to be that element where it's like, you know, I've always wanted to do this. Whether mm-hmm. it's a good thing or a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know, you're going, okay, I relate. I've, I've always wanted to act out against X or, right. you know, I, I've been so put down by the way this, you know, uh, scenario is that I, I need to react against it. Mm-hmm so I, I, I think absolutely. that that's why I'm so confused when so many of these villains are unrelatable or just one note.
1: When, when I'm reading a book or watching a movie where a villain is, has absolutely no redeeming qualities or no redemption arc or potential for a redemption arc, I usually check out. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually not, I'm not interested. All right. Just as an aside, you can totally edit this out. But the matter of fact, you probably should because it's totally unrelated to everything we're talking about, other than Batman. But <laughs> I I firmly believe this next bat this Matt Reeves Batman movie will be the the absolute best one, and it's for one reason and one reason only. And I, I had this conversation with Coleman, and it was pretty funny. But have you seen the trailer for the new one? Yes. Okay. This is the only trailer and the only Batman movie where he does not say I'm Batman. <laughs> he says I'm vengeance Yeah. when they ask him who he is. it That has driven me crazy about every Batman movie since the Keaton one, like Batman would never call himself Batman. He is, he's a symbol and that's it. Like, and the fact that even the title of the movie is the batman not batman right people would refer to him We're as not the this batman. Account, by the way <laughs> it's it's so important though it really, it is. really like, is okay no, in, in terms of writing it yeah like in terms of writing it is important like batman is not gonna like even in the even in the uh, the first christian bale iteration the, the batman begins when he punches through the window and pulls the guy up and he asks what are you you I'm Batman. Come on. Like that's, if, if you're really going to dive into what you were talking about, the, the, all of the, the, the things that motivate him, it's not branding. Like, he's not no, going to give no, himself it's a title. The same thing with Superman. Superman is not going to call himself, but Superman never calls himself Superman. Everybody else calls him Superman. The, the well, fact that Batman is a whole is that,
0: different so, thing. But,
1: but, but that was the title the public gave him, right? Yeah. They saw the S on his chest. They saw him do super things. He's a Superman, right? Here's a guy dressed up like a bat. He's the, he's the Batman. He's the Batman that's prowling our streets. Like, that's the other thing I think they get wrong in all of these Batman movies and even in the Batman comics. Is people should, Everybody should be afraid of Batman, not just criminals. He's a—it's a dude in a bat suit beating the shit out of people. Why? Why would I walking the streets feel safer that there's a guy in a bat suit kicking the shit out of people? Thankfully, he's beating up criminals. I, I'm telling you, there's—I—I I, oh, you talk about properties I want to write for. <laughs> man, I would, I would love to dive into that stuff with <laughs> Batman.
0: Okay, Batman so two for two, we're people. on Batman. Yes. <laughs> and the first, my first guest also chose Batman.
1: <laughs> yes. There's so much that can be done there.
0: So, okay. Um, that went to <laughs> a lot of different places I was not expecting. <laughs> but I'm very happy about it. Um, so, uh, uh, why don't, John, please tell... Um, your website, uh, uh, the date of your upcoming book, et cetera, et cetera, please.
1: Uh, Well, okay. I will share the the website and social media because you asked, but I will tell all your listeners that don't go there for any juicy content or hot takes in terms of social media posts. I'm very boring. I'm usually just promoting my next thing. Um, so <laughs> I'm on uh, my website is the uh, highly original John um, uh, My you can uh, find me on Twitter at v e r c h seventy five and on Instagram at johnvirture75. But again, no hot takes, uh, nothing, n- none of this stimulating conversation you just heard, just mostly books, promotion stuff. Um, my next book, uh, After the Lights Go Out, is coming from Soho Press, July of 2022, which I wish it was sooner, I can't wait, but I'm very excited. No, it's, it's amazing. Um,
0: Please pre-order this, like it's it's crazy good.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I, thank you. That's, I don't deal with compliments well, but I thank you. Um, that's it. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you for having me. (laughs) And I hope we do this again very, very soon. Words of Pray um, and it is a Pipeline Artist original and Pipeline Artist focuses on education, empowerment, and elevating authentic voices in film publishing and beyond. And you can contact us and the other future podcasts at Podcasts Plural at pipelineartists.com and you can find us and a bunch of other amazing podcasts at pipelineartist.com backslash listen and if you have any suggestions for guests or anything else um or any questions please don't hesitate to reach out and we will see you next time